Hey Chris, how are you? Morning Anthony, I'm going excellent, how are you? Good, thank you. We, um, we've discovered that we, um, we have met quite some time ago. You used to work as a security guard at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, obviously in Adelaide, South Australia. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, we spent a few evenings hanging out on the roof of the Royal Adelaide waiting for doctors to um, deal with their patients. What, what were you doing on the Royal Adelaide? What actually was your job? Well, back in those days, I was on the Code Black team. For people that don't know what that is, that's basically emergency response, personal threat. And part of my role um, as a guard um, was uh, a helipad assistant. So I would go to the flight deck and uh, report to the pilot wind speed and um, let them know that the, the deck is clear to land and then uh, I would obviously stay up on the pad until uh, the doctors and paramedics had taken the patient to emergency and then um, so essentially with the code black team it's uh, for personal threat so you're uh, removing visitors from the waiting room who are violent and aggressive you're dealing with patients in the hospital that uh, they could be detained under the Mental Health Act. They could be brought in for substance abuse where they become violent and they uh, will need to be restrained physically. Uh, they don't always end that way. Um, you know, I was a good talker and uh, a lot of the problems could be diffused with talking, but it doesn't always end that way, unfortunately. and. Um, it may be a case of uh, a patient's restrained and then and shackled to a bed and uh, given a sedative, uh, depending on uh, the situation. So, um, and then just the general security. It sounds, the, it sounds like a. It, it, it sounds like a pretty confronting job. It certainly was. You'll certainly learn what you're made of. Um, you'll come face to face with a. A lot of. Different. Uh, people in different situations that are highly dangerous. Um, yeah, it, uh, it certainly has helped with my growth as a person. Uh, that was uh, going back, well, I left there in 2013. So I oh, was still in my early 30s. And when I started there, I was about 30. So uh, you certainly, uh, you learn and what you're made of and gives you a lot of lessons obviously to do that sort of work to do that sort of work you would have needed to be like physically fit and able i certainly was then um i'm not out of shape now but i'm in my 40s now and i've got as we all get niggles and um you know, aches and pains but back then i was you know training hard and uh you know looking after myself and we had a crackerjack team to the point that uh, there was a particular nurse uh, who and I were very friendly and uh, I remember one night I rocked up for a shift and uh, she just yells out, oh good, the A-team's on and I wasn't the team leader of this particular squad but I always took a lot of pride in uh, in that job and uh, it always made me feel uh, you know, really good. That would be said a lot, you know, our team was, was superb um, we had some good talkers, 
and our team leader was enormous. He looked like he was escaped out of Jurassic Park. So we had all the boxes yeah. ticked, and um, so much so, um, and I say this with humility, but when I left, as we all did, because the job was extremely taxing with the hours, and the job is extremely uh, difficult and confronting. It's not for everybody. Um, the uh, The money is not good. So people tend to leave. So there used to be four teams of six, and I believe that now there's probably one left out of the 24 that was there then. So when I left, it was about three months later, uh, something happened in emergency that uh, was pretty severe. And uh, my friend Mel, who's in charge of the mental health team, well, she was then, she said to me on the phone that a nurse had made a comment and said this this wouldn't have happened when uh, Chris was here. And, you know, that was nice. That was a nice uh, thing to hear. But... Um, yeah, isn't that good? Yeah, look, it was a great time. I really enjoyed uh, working there. I enjoyed the, the work, and I, I love the staff. I still see some to this day. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah, yeah, look, yeah it, the hourly rate is not a sustainable way to live, especially with the hours that you do, and it's risk versus reward. So, uh, look, I went on to do other things. So, well, One of the things that happened to you while... In, at the Royal Adelaide is you had a, um, an encounter with a mutual friend of ours, Ray Stone. One night he landed on your helipad while you were waiting and you hit it off. And um, he's had a profound effect on your life. Absolutely. He um, literally came out of the sky and uh, he, uh, I was on the, I called in the, the chopper this particular day and this man came out and, uh, and sat with me and uh, as the doctors went downstairs to ED and I was at a point in my life where uh, I'd, I'd stopped drinking. And I, you know, I, I have a problem with alcohol and at that point in my life I was quite sheepish and very embarrassed about it. And I didn't talk a lot about it unless I was comfortable with someone or I knew them. And uh, Within seconds, I had an instant synergy with Ray, who's one of my best friends, you know, to this day. And uh, I, we just started talking about life, and I just, uh, this is verbatim, I said to him, you know, Ray, because uh, obviously Ray's a lot older than I am, so he's got a, a lot more life experience and is the wisest person that I know. And I just happened to say to him flippantly, you know, I feel like I'm being pulled down a corridor and I really don't know uh, where, why, or how, where I'm heading, but I'm being pulled somewhere. And then I started saying, have you ever seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind where he's making shapes out of the mashed potato and he's out in the backyard yelling at the sky, why, what? I kind of felt like that. And... Uh, and he, uh, he started just writing some things down and then he referred to me some books at which point then I told him about my history with alcohol which was extremely uncanny for me to tell a stranger and this man listened to me with no judgment and actually embraced that and uh, a week later a book came in the mail 
and uh, it was called the key to life and uh, we'd obviously swap phone numbers as well on the helipad and I, I thought oh, this has to be Ray I mean I didn't order this book and I rang Ray and said Ray did you send me this book he goes absolutely and he wouldn't take any money for this book and uh, he said look mate this uh, this will get you started and uh, I've been where you've been where you don't know, uh, you feel like you're being pulled somewhere. He said, what you're looking for is some answers and uh, you're a seeker. And so from that book went to another book and uh, and the rest is history. Um, it's been uh, it's been a journey. And um, he, uh, so he's been a wonderful friend to me and a, and a massive influence. I mean, like, you're a product in your life of your experiences and the people that you come in contact with. And I'm absolutely blessed to uh, have met Ray and, uh, I can't really express enough the, uh, the profound impact that man has uh, had on my life. And, uh, so much so I won't go in to this particular story, but, uh, my dog was attacked a few years ago and it was, absolutely bloody terrible and uh, hadn't I rang Ray this particular night and I paced my hallways and I was uh, that angry I was about to go off like a fucking hydrogen bomb and hadn't I rang Ray I don't know and I can honestly tell you I don't know uh, what, my, what my situation may be now but that man um, said some things to me which I won't repeat, which, uh, you know, the re once again, the rest is history and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful man. Absolutely wonderful. How does that story go, the story that you started to tell him? Well, that story goes like this, um, Anthony. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and... Uh, that has been one hell of a journey and uh, I basically uh, well, I had my first drink when I was 14 I was a, a young kid that was riddled with nerves and anxiety but you know you don't have the life skills or the articulation at that point of your life to pinpoint all that but you know I was a straight A student um, a good athlete and uh I was that crippled with nerves. I don't know if you could relate to this, but when the teacher would talk in front of the class and they would uh, just be talking about a particular problem and I would know it. And then as soon as the teacher would stand and point and go, Chris, and I would know the answer and I would absolutely freeze. And I would generally say, I don't know. When I, and I, but I did know it. And I used to get to the point where while he was talking about this particular problem, he or she, I would be in that much fear of, oh, don't pick me, don't pick me. So instead of listening to what he's talking about, I was just that concerned with, will I be selected to talk in front of the class? Now, I had a, my first strength, as I said, at 14. And when that happened, something changed within me and there was like a liquid blanket of warmth and calm that came over me and those sort of feelings stopped and then it became not so much a regular regular habit at that age but I liked it 
and my uh, grandfathers were extremely violent and terrible alcoholics and it's all through my bloodline in every social experience I remember my mum doesn't drink and my dad was always just a social drinker but we'd go to places and you know you know, I'd never see one of my aunties without uh, a brandy in her hand and people always drinking. It's all the way down back, both sides. I've got a couple of cousins with the same problem that I have. So, uh, you know, the the odds are kind of stacked against you from the beginning. So, uh, that's sort of, then I got to 15 and then uh, I, stopped, I stopped caring, Anthony. And my priority became uh, alcohol, and uh, I started smoking marijuana. And then, you know, I went from a straight A student to I used to rock up with, you know, not even the right uniform. And I found, though, what's interesting that the less that I cared, the less the anxiety um, was washing over me. So it got to the point that it got quite bad. And uh, and I can remember this like it was yesterday. In 1992, I was in year 10. And before school at 8.30 in the morning, a friend of mine, him and I drank two bottles of port and uh, went to school. And that day, my mum was working in the canteen of all days and I ended up falling asleep at the table and... The teacher couldn't wake me up. The deputy principal had to basically carry me to the uh, principal's office and then obviously go and tell my mum, your son's... I wasn't even drunk, Anthony. I was paralytic. And she had to take me home. And uh, my mum called my dad home from work. And, uh, you know, that uh, what a horrible thing for a mum to experience. So... I ended up leaving school in, uh, at the end of year 10 and I started work. It was the only way because I had to make a change and which I did, you know, so going forward into my um, later teens, I I ended up in a, a place called Kingcraft, which to this day was um, the, the best job I've had with some of the loveliest people I've ever known and was... Uh, there was a man there that uh, he was 10 years older than me that really took me under his wing and uh, he saw me turn 18, 21, get engaged, not get engaged <laughs> and uh, he was also a massive influence on my life and unfortunately he passed away five years ago at 45 of uh, on early onset dementia. He was one of the greatest people that you'd ever meet and um, yeah, I miss him. So, I I was drinking at that point, but I really, uh, you know, I had it sort of under wraps. So I, I was at a point at 21 where I would have a, a few beers and I would say, look, I've got to drive, and I would stop. But addictions, uh, I'm looking at a tree in my backyard, Anthony, and the tree is enormous, but it didn't start off like that. It was once a seedling that develops and no one generally ends up having their first smoke and smokes a packet a day. And no one generally has one drink and then becomes an alcoholic. So things were, you know, under control at that point. 
And uh, that place got bought out, sold, and uh, Kim became a bus driver, not for long, because the dementia hit him at 40, and he slowly declined. He was in a nursing home at 42, so what a, a terrible story mm. that is. So now I'm at the Woolworths Distribution Centre at uh, 24, and uh, you know I always had a lot of friends there, and I was liked, and you'd, you know you'd go out after work, and then something changed within me where you know a few wasn't enough, and before I knew it, I was uh, drinking whatever I liked. Um, with whatever quantity I liked, and then I would drive, and I'm embarrassed to say, I liked it. And how much would you be drinking at that time? Um, well, if I was at the pub, you know, I never used to count them, but I you would just drink until uh, to see the thing with me, Anthony. One. You know, I've always said, you know, when people say, why don't you drink, Chris? I say, well, because when I have one, it turns into the Aerosmith World Tour. My brain is ravenous, ravenous. Once it gets a sip, it will not stop until I pass out or I get that sick, I have to stop. And I will source it. Mm-hmm. If I'm out somewhere and, and, and the alcohol runs out, I will go and drive to go and get more and risk risk everything and uh, you know I got to a point in my life where I used to get agitated I would ring up if I was going to a party I would make sure there's enough alcohol there so I would take enough or if I was at somewhere and it was looking like the alcohol was going to run out I'd get highly agitated and obviously end up in town or somewhere like that so it, so going back to what I was saying there look up easy drink a carton in one sitting easy and I'll generally have about six to someone's one or two. So I drive, and uh, yeah, I liked it. And um, now in 2003, I was at a funeral, and I've always loved American pickup trucks. I love them, the F100s, F150s. I was at a funeral, and I was sitting there, and I just, uh, and because they're very expensive. And I sat there, and I had this, this, this wave of, um, what would you call it? You know, let's live for the now and life short. And I sat there when I'm going to go and get one of these. I'm going to get an F-150, F-100, and I end up buying one. It cost me a lot of money, and I got it hotted up, and it was a work of art. And I love this thing to the point I'd spend a whole Saturday washing it. Then I'd go and get a cart and sit on the porch and just look at it. <laughs> with, with music playing and I held this thing with that much reverence and um, now my alcohol starting now we're getting worse and worse where I used to just be a weekend drinker and I would binge and I I still remember saying and to friends of mine oh, I can't believe the blokes that drink on a Monday or a Tuesday I just don't get that I was a weekend drinker but then something else you go to the next stage where now it's Tuesday night and I'm drinking a carton with a mate of mine on his porch playing records at 2am and then I'd go to work and I'd always go to work. I, no matter how hungover I would be, I would go to work 
and uh, I didn't really get that depressed uh, with with hangovers. I just rock and roll. Um, and so now in 2004, I'm in full swing, and uh, the, the amount of alcohol I was consuming was just absolutely ridiculous. I didn't drink in the mornings before work. People would uh, were starting to say, "Chris, I'm actually worried about you. I've only had one beer. You've had six. And, ah, it's fine. It's fine." So, the particular mate of mine who you know I loved like a brother, um, in November 2004, he gave me a phone call and he said, uh, "Look, mate, I'm having a few problems with my missus. Do you want to have a beer?" I went, "Absolutely." So we went to the Clover Crest Hotel and I had six pints before you could even blink. And he'd had a couple and he went to see a friend of his. Um, and then we were drinking um, Jack Daniels and Coke. I took a carton and put it on ice. And uh, this was going to be a, one of those game-changing evenings where the last thing I remember of that night really, or the second last memory was he had his arm around me and he said to these two fellas, this bloke, I love him like a brother. He's the best guy you're ever going to meet. And I just thought, that's that's wonderful. And then the next song I remember, we're driving home and I was just doing 60 k's an hour and then I blacked out. And then the next thing I remember, I can still hear the noise, the crunch of metal I'd, uh, I'd, I'd obviously, uh, I'd fallen asleep. I don't know the speed then, but I'd clipped the roundabout and flipped my truck upside down into a wall of a house, not the actual house itself, but a, a garden brick wall. So the front yard and I was awake from the moment it flipped and the crunch, then we landed upside down and my mate was passed out from, from the grog. He was hanging by his seatbelt and I was trapped and the roof had crushed and the coolant was pissing out of the engine and burning my leg, but I was uh, stuck and I was screaming at my friend and I thought he was dead. And then, you know, my breathing started to slow down and I actually thought I was going to die and then I, I blacked out. The next memory from that, I'm in an ambulance and I just woke up and I'm just screaming, Where's Matt? Is he okay? And they said, we don't know. And then I was hysterical and then I blacked out again. And then I woke up in the hospital and uh, the car was a ride off. The wall was smashed. Um, he had no injuries. And the only injury I had was a full thickness burn to my car from where the coolant had burnt me in, which is a miracle. We should have been dead. Now, we, uh, I went to see him in his room and he said, uh, look, mate, I don't, there's no hard feelings. And uh, I went and saw him again when we got out of hospital and he gave me a hug and he said, no, mate, he goes, you know, it's, we, we both do it. We both drink and drive and everything's all right. So one of the hardest things of my life I had to do at that time, Anthony, I went to see his mother and father and his dad was a cop. His mum's a teacher, and uh, I pulled up in that driveway, and I felt like I was four years old. 
And when I knocked on the door, I didn't know what to expect. Well, I, I was expecting mass judgment, which is reasonable, yelling. And these people opened the door and his dad gave, he shook my hand and we both had a couple of tears and his mum gave me a hug. They took me inside and they said, we love you, but this is unacceptable. And I know you both do it. So, but this could have been a disaster. And I said, absolutely. So everything sort of, well, it was not going to be okay. But from that perspective, uh, my friend and I are no longer friends over some financial stuff after it. So he was the first friend that I ever really, you know, lost. I'd never, the mates I had, I'd never lost any. And that was very, very, very hard to take. And then there was a lot of things coming now. Insurance, because I blew, oh hell, it was over 0.2. Um, so when you say loss, you're talking about this is the first friend you've lost because of alcohol. In, in life, in life. You know, it's a bit like, you know, when you're friends with people at school and you go separate. But this is, a you know, losing a friend with a falling out that, you know, if I was going to get married, he would have been you know, one of the guys next to me. The, I, that I loved him like a brother. So that was hard to take. I have so many wonderful memories of uh, our friendship that we had and you know I only have to play a Black Sabbath or a Led Zeppelin Deep Purple record and I'm back there on the porch a mate of mine once said you know when you play those albums do you ever because now there's a lot of hostility between him and I he goes do you ever think oh well you know that's bullshit what about that I said mate no I only think of the good times I said hell if I if you're like that you would never play any album or watch another movie because there's always going to be something in your life that uh, that's a bad memory. I said, no, no, I don't, uh, I don't do that. But that's only at this point in my life. Um, but um, so, how did that um, incident affect your alcohol drinking? Well, so for most people, that would be a game changer, wouldn't it? I, I became yeah. worse. Probably for the next twelve months, every time I was asleep, I actually used to wake up a lot when I did sleep. And I'd hear that the crunch of the metal, which really used to wake me up like night terrors. And um, my insomnia started terribly then. I mean, there were times I'd go to work with one hour's sleep, do a shift, and go home. And then the next night, lay there all night awake, and then go back to work. And I just kept punching. And so, with the sleep deprivation, I was starting to get highly depressed and I was embarrassed about the accident, um, you know, I worked in a place of 400 people and everyone knew and I felt like oh, just people could see it coming too. Uh, you know, I was on a road to ruin and um, the road to ruin really hadn't even started yet because I, uh, the drinking became much worse. Now, with this accident with someone in the car, it was only about 12 months later now, so I had an F-150, now I'm driving a, a beat-up van worth 700 bucks, I lost my truck, and uh, my girlfriend at the time, you know, I lived with her, and, you know, one thing I will say about my drinking, Anthony, I was never like my grandfather's, I was never violent, 
I was always, uh, you know, fun to be around. You know, caviar, cigars, it's a night of your life. You know, it's there was never any hostility there. So, but uh, this inability to stop um, was really uh, getting out of control. And so if you, you had an accident with someone in the car, most people would, would quit. 12 months later, I'm in my van now. I was at a party with my girlfriend in the car and I drank about a carton of rum and coke and I was driving this van and on the way home, I'd nodded off and I'm driving through roadworks and I'd smashed through the roadworks on and I'm running over witches hats and I came to really, really quick. I pulled over and got some fresh air. My partner at the time was asleep in the car and I sat there and I, I thought, what are you doing? Well, this is the exact same thing. And, um, mm. Now we're into uh, 2006, and it's it's got even worse. And I'm actually now my partner and I split. I uh, wasn't working out, and uh, I'm going to wind the clock, clock back. Sorry, Anthony, one year. My apologies. I yep, I took fine. myself to AA. And I sat there, and uh, that was quite uh, confronting. But I didn't call myself an alcoholic because when I started, I couldn't stop. But I didn't drink in the morning, so I thought, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. And I sat in this circle. And then the horror of some of the people's lives where, you know, my name's such and such. It's been one hour since my last drink. And then the next person, my name's such and such. I'm an alcoholic. Well, it came to me. And my monologue was longer than the intro to the pattern. It, I'm going... My name's Chris. I'm not an alcoholic, but when I start, I can't stop. And I went on and on. <laughs> and no one called me up on that. Um, I refused to say I was an alcoholic. I just kept saying, no, look, I can't stop. And then I gave a speech, which was um, very cathartic. After the first person that spoke was a cop who flipped the squad car into a paddock, which I love that story because it just made me feel like I'm not alone and uh, mm. it doesn't justify my behaviour but it's, it's when you you can connect with someone who's done the same thing and if a cop can throw a squad car into a paddock and land on its roof then you know you think shit I'm not alone yeah so AA wasn't really going to work for me I really uh, it, at that point in my life I thought no uh I went twice, and both times I, you know, gave this bloody five-minute speech like I was giving an Oscar about how I'm not an alcoholic, but I just start and can't stop. So I went and did that, and it didn't work for me. And you know, things got progressively worse um, to the point that now I started to go to work hungover. And I remember one day I uh, rang up a mate of mine who was the first aider, and uh, I met him in the first aid room. I said, "Man, I'm not going to level with you. I'm not sick." I'm not hungover, I've just got to lay on the stretcher. He goes, ah, do what you want. And I just started telling him, uh, look, I've got some problems, man, and I've got to really start making some changes to my life. Um, and then he said to me a few things about his life, why he doesn't drink that much anymore. Um, so we shared some information. But then over the next 12 months, what started to happen was 
the older I got, the hangovers became depressive episodes where I'd be crippled in bed and I wouldn't go into work. So that's the next step. Now my attendance is being affected. Um, and my mood is being severely affected because the amount of the, the quantity of alcohol that I can on a Tuesday night, I'd have a mate come around and stand around the fire, drink a carton on my own and drink half a, a cask of musket. And I, it was just absolutely out of control. You know, I could have easily, and I don't play an instrument, I could have maybe just hit the triangle, but I could have been in the Rolling Stones 100%. I would have fitted in like a glove. I was completely out of control at this point on a complete road to ruin. And um, now I'm starting to get pains in my back when I drink. Now we're into 2007 and things are, you know, bad. I'm still driving around. After everything I've been through, I one night was down at Glenelg and uh, drank all day, all night. I drove uh, down Grand Junction Road heading home. I can see a breatho. I'm just about having a heart attack. My eyes were literally slits. I had my hands attended to and I could barely, uh, I felt like I was floating. And as I pulled up, the breatho was full and I got waved through and I went home and I just sort of sat there and I could not believe my luck, but that didn't change. Now I've said three things to you so far that that would be enough to knock people's senses and go, that's enough. But I kept yeah. going and... Um, Getting caught at that breath, though, would have been a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't have a license either, mind you, when I did this, because I lost my license. <laughs> I lost my license from the, from the truck. I didn't go to court for two years, and then I lost it for a bit over a year. So I didn't know. I used to drive around now pissed without a license. Um, so now, early 2008, I'm real, I've hit the skids. I'm depressed. I'm not sleeping well. I am, uh, I'm drinking a lot. Um, and there was one time, it was Mother's Day the next day, and I love my mum to bitch. She's been a wonderful mum to me. And I drank the same amount that I said before, over a carton, some port. The next day is Mother's Day. We've got plans to drive to Manor. My parents rock up and I stink like a fucking wino. And, and then the normal bullshit that'll come out of your mouth because the whole house would have stunk. And they said, oh, you've been drinking. And I only had one. And they didn't say anything. They just looked at me like, no, you didn't. Now on the way to Manor, we had to pull up three times and I vomited to the point there was just bile and my mum and dad looked at me with just sadness and it was Mother's Day. It was Mother's Day, Anthony, and um, that's, that's really terrible. Um, and then uh, mum's 60th was in this period and she deserved beautiful words to be spoken about her. This lady is uh, gives to charities and she's, you know, gives for others and she's such a loving lady and all I did was drink rum and I didn't want to I was didn't want to speak in front of people so I just sat there and drank and didn't say a word and uh, that, that really all these things started to weigh me down and things were completely out of control so now it's 2008 
and I went to the doctors and I said, listen, I've got pains in my side when I drink. And the doctor I had known since I was a little boy, he said, do you drink a lot? I said, absolutely. He said, do you drink quick? I said, yeah, you bet. He goes, well, that generally is, do you urinate a lot? I said, oh, yeah. I said, I could have put out Ash Wednesday if you put me on a helicopter after I drank a carton. And he said, that's generally backwash through the kidneys. If you're the urine quantity is that much, you can backwash through the kidneys and give you pains. He said, which is, no, that's not great. He said, you get kidney stones and things like that. But if you're getting that, I'm going to just uh, take some blood. We're going to test your liver. I said, all right. So I can't get too technical with this, Anthony, but the liver's measured by four numbers. And if you just want to use, just for this example, a left-hand line and a healthy liver, the numbers are on the line. And you know, I was uh, oh, probably about 32, 31. And these numbers were off the chart. So my GP said to me, Chris, this is really bad. You keep going like this. And I'm going to see 40. He said, you need to cut back. I said, I can't. I said, because when I have one, I can't stop. He goes, then you have to have none. And I sort of sat there and uh, I thought about this. So I gave it a crack. And I reckon uh, I was, didn't have a drink for about a month. Now, that's tough because everything in my life at that point, every social occasion was built around alcohol and everyone I knew just about drank. And it was uh, just inbuilt, well, it's inbuilt to our culture in general, but that was my whole world. Now that became interesting because I now had a break and there was certain people that really found it hard to accept and would try to encourage me and all that sort of stuff. And um, but we'll get on to more of that in a minute. But on April the 19th, 2008, I got my license back so as you do, you're a bullshit artist when you have an addiction. I, I made an excuse and went, oh, I've got my license back. I'm going to drink. And I drank on my own. I lit a fire in my drum that I had in the backyard. And I was drinking red wine and beer. And I ended up being in that much pain on my sides. I ended up laying on the back lawn. And my dog came up to me and licked my face. And I love my dog, like he's my own blood. And... Um, and I just started crying, really. I, uh, I was overmatched. <clears throat> I was overmatched. This is a fight that I can't win, Anthony. It's a fight I'm not going to win. If there's a Mack truck coming down the road, I'm not the thing from the Fantastic Four, so I can't just hip and shoulder this truck. If I don't get out of the way, I'm going to die. And so alcohol is the Mack truck, and I have to step aside. Otherwise, I'm going to get wiped out. And I went, that's it. And I went inside and did one of the most confronting things that you can do, and it doesn't have to be alcohol, but I looked in the mirror and I was a shell of, uh, I had so much potential in life. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie on the waterfront, Marlon Brando's in the back seat of the taxi saying I could have been a contender, but I'm not. And it's basically, uh, that was, he was talking about boxing, but I look at that like people, when, well, I've said that when I mean I haven't peaked. I could have been a contender, I haven't peaked yet, and I could have been this. 
and alcohol was taken and taken and taken from me, Anthony. And that's all it does. It takes your money, it takes your health, it can take relationships, it takes your license, and it will take your soul. The only thing it really gives you is weight gain, bad health, and uh, a broken spirit. So I looked in this mirror and I went, that's it. That's it. I need to... Uh, I got need my virtue. I've always been a good guy um, to other people, but I've been destructive to myself. But I made a pact. I looked in the mirror and said, "That's it. I'm going to be truthful." There's a great line in AA where they say, "I'm responsible. I'm responsible for anyone anywhere that reaches out for help." And I, I'd spent years not being responsible, and I looked in the mirror and said, "That's it. I'm going to be responsible." Every time you don't speak the truth, it's like a part of your dies. Virtue is extremely important in your life. So there I was at 2 a.m. and I made a pact with myself. That was it. So what I did, I love animals. I was actually lucky enough because I'd been a bouncer in the late 90s. So I had a security license. The job I was doing as the, the shift manager at the Woolies DC at... Um, I needed to just get away from the culture and the people that I was there with. And uh, not that that was their fault, but I needed to just make a break and start fresh. And the, the best job I probably could have had was this. I became a canine handler, attack dog security, where you basically work alone a lot. And it was shift work and the hours were horrendous at times. And I'm not bagging it. That's just the, the lifestyle of that job. You know all about the, the big shifts, being a helicopter pilot. Mm. Now, that detached me severely from um, my social life. And uh, and uh, in any sort of ability, I didn't have the ability to get pissed anymore, even if I wanted to. But I was on now such a mission. There was nothing going to stop me. I was on a mission. And I rocked up to every shift for two and a half years, except once when I had, a, I had to go to the neurosurgeon and get a spinal block. And then I worked the next day. I was on a mission. And then, um, you know, I really felt great. And life started to change. And I started to grow at a rapid rate, um, living a life of truth, virtue. And the real me started to to come out and what then became interesting I had people who would come over and visit with grog and I'd sit there with a coffee and I'd look at them and go without alcohol there's nothing in this relationship this is just vapid rubbish so I started to become you know the acquaintances started to go but then and a lot of people who drink will relate to this I went to a, a party one night I had a night off. I took a six pack of Pepsi Max and I was around the fire of this person's home and I always show respect to people in general, but if someone's home, that's their castle. But this fucker, who was one of the people that used to say I'm worried about you, come up to me and he goes, oh, Wani, you should uh, just have one beer just to be social. And I went off like a hydrogen bomb. I said, mate, 
I said, you're, the, you're one of the people that said I had an issue. Now you want me to have a drink when you know I can't have one. And I said, how am I any less social by having a Pepsi Max? If anything, I'm more social because I'm not talking bullshit. And there's substance to what I'm saying. Now, I, I, this is around the fire and everyone could hear it and it's his house. And I, you know, I was about to say I didn't feel good about that, but fuck him. You know, because what he did was absolutely terrible. Someone was trying to quit smoking. I wouldn't blow nicotine in their face. And he knew damn well like, my backstory, and he was one of the people that said, hey, you know, I'm worried. So that I started to get that a bit. And the reason why, people that drink don't like to drink alone. You'll drink with the devil himself if you're by yourself. There's something visceral about that, and um, it's just a common theme. To this day, I still have to put up with that from... Some people, when you go out, I'll get on to that, that later on. So so I'm on fire and I'm feeling, you know, good. My body's in good shape. My liver is improving because I get my liver checked. Now, there's two types of triggers, Anthony, with uh, it can be any addiction. But for me, it's alcohol. There's two triggers generally you got depression, then you've got a victory when you win a war. And those two things for me um, are the trigger points. And sometimes you get a 10 second warning, we like to call it, you get 10 seconds. You're taking 10 seconds to decide where, which way you're gonna go and it's the most horrible feeling in the world. So early 2011, my mate had a birthday party at a restaurant. Now, I had decided my life was completely about work and I needed a, a, I needed now a job that gave me balance, a social life and ability to clean my house, to go and see my mum and dad without rushing against the clock and having to go back to work and do another, you know, it could be possibly a, you know, a 17 hour shift. Now I'd made this decision to leave and uh, do something else and I felt fabulous. And I'm at this uh, dinner. Now, I'm sitting there and um, I've ordered my meal and I'm drinking soda water, which is my drink of choice now. And everyone around me is drinking. And I could smell the red wine and I I thought, yeah, I could, maybe. Yeah, and I tossed it with this and then the 10 second warning came because I knew I'm either not going to do it or it's going to be game on. And then I just went, oh, fuck it. I've won a war. How good have I been for two and a half years or whatever it's been? And I had one sip. And it's like the tree. It's no longer the seedling again. Once an addiction forms, that stays like that for life. So it's not like you go back to the beginning where you go, oh, I'll just have one and oh, I'll be right. I had one sip and I would have probably ripped through two bottles at the restaurant. I went back to a mate's house. I drank till I basically passed out. I woke up the next day and although my hangover was horrendous, red wine gives you terrible hangovers, but it, it was the self-flagellation. I felt that depressed because I've worked so hard and now I, um, I'm fighting my inner self. I've gone back to the mirror and I've now I've lied to myself and although you know, if you read some self-help books, self-flagellation is never overly helpful, but that 
that drive is the drive that got me to stop. Now, I was at myself for days and uh, I was I was fucking depressed. Um, yeah, the wine, but I was just at myself for letting myself down. Now, here's the problem. What did that... Um, um, what did that sip taste like? I tasted um, like gold. Mm. It tasted like uh, nostalgia and warmth, and it tasted like excitement. But if you do a graph of when you drink, the first few drinks are wonderful, and you feel fantastic. And I don't need alcohol to be sociable, but you it elevates. And, you know, but I'm the sort of dickhead, though, when I drink. I mean, hell, if there's keys in an aeroplane, you know, I'd go, hey, there we go. And people go, does Chris have a pilot's license? I don't think so. And I'm, off I go. So, um, sorry, I've lost uh, the train of thought there, Anthony. I, um, oh, you, yeah, but what did the alcohol taste like? Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, yeah, with this graph, so if you, you feel great, you feel great. Now, I've noticed with people that used to drink with me who are huge drinkers, who can drink a lot, it gets to a point, you hit your peak at about the two-hour mark. After two hours, you're still drinking, but let's, your mood and you, the way you feel gets lower and lower and lower, but you're just still consuming the alcohol to feed the brain. And that's why you see people drinking at 6 a.m. and they're just sort of like zombies. I've had people in my lounge room do that. They're not enjoying it. They're just drinking to um, feed the, it could be the addiction. Yep. So uh, it was uh, it, that opened it now, Vortex, because once I had that taste, now I had to tussle with, now I feel like more. And, um, Did you feel like you'd wasted that two and a half absolutely. years? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I felt really, mm. really shit. And um, so I went along. I started at the Ra. Now, that was another game changer as far as my growth as a person. You know, we've touched on I met Ray, and um, I dealt with some things at the Ra that were um, extremely severe. You know, dangerous. The element of people. Now, there was this one particular night. We had a guy come in who was paralytic. He was a big rig, and he would have been a pretty worthy opponent. Now, in any restraint, this is just what happens when you go and talk to someone. They'll generally pick someone they don't like. And this bloke didn't like me at all. And um, this guy was a hand grenade. And he came in paralytic. He was brought in. Now, we had to pin him down. He had to be shackled. He was given a sedative. Now, this bloke, the obscenities in the ED, people were shitting their pants, the patients, the staff. But we got it. We sorted it out. There was no problem. But he wanted my blood. Then what happened now, well, next, is one of the greatest experiences of my life because... Uh, He's now in the corridor because obviously there's not enough rooms at times. He's in the corridor and um, he's laying there. And I walked past him and I stopped and I said, how are you feeling? And he's laying there with his head in his pillow and he said, oh, oh, oh shit. 
is I remember you. Is we were going to have a fight or something. I said, yeah, or, or something. I said, uh, you're a bit loose. And then what happened next, Anthony, was absolutely unbelievable. This man laid there and said, oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, I can't stop, mate. I want to drink, man. I'm, I'm this and I'm that and rules my life. I get aggro. I can't stop. You know, and I stood there and I said, yeah, I get it. And he said to me, how could you get it? So I said, mate, we had a bit of a thing in the team. We didn't really say our real names to the violent patients. We'd used other different names or none. But I said to this bloke, look, mate, I said, my name's Chris. I said, I'll tell you a quick tale. So I gave him a condensed thing of just what I've told you. Now he's actually sitting up on the barouche. And you can tell when people are really listening to you. This guy was now locked in. And a lot of the stuff I'd done, he'd done, but he's done more violent stuff. Then he said, how did you stop? I said, well, I did this, I did that. And I said, if I can give you any advice, number one thing is get things in order. Is your house clean? Put stuff in order, get your life in order. Now, I always had a proclivity, Anthony, to have stuff, you know, I'm extremely neat. But when I stop drinking, I, I have noticed, and I'm very self-aware, I have things color-coded, I have things alphabetized, the jars are in size order. Now, that works for me, and I like it. I don't check the locks five times before I go out, and I don't wash my hands a hundred times. What I do doesn't affect me, my day-to-day -day life, but I love things extremely neat, and I find it's very useful for me. If you can't control the small things in life, Anthony, you'll never control the big things. How are you going to control alcohol if your house is a pigsty and you can't even control that? You know what I mean? Have yeah. a structure. You know, I'm not saying you have to go and do a walk at one o'clock by any means, but by having things in order in your life, uncluttered house, uncluttered mind is a great line. And you just start from there. You know, eat well. And this bloke hung off every single word I said, and then I gave him my speech about the mirror, and I told him about, you know, this and that. Now, this oh, this guy wanted to, you know, he, we were going to have a fight, and he wanted he wanted me dead. He went from that, this big fucker now was holding my hand, weeping, and then what he said next made my whole, it's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. He said, Chris, I've been to doctors and I've been to drug and alcohol clinics and I've been to psychologists and no one has ever been able to word it like that. He goes, thank you. And then he went from weeping to crying and uh, I tell you, man, it was a scene. But the nurses over in there to the left, everyone could see all this. And he held my hand, this he was just about crushing my hand and the passion and the, and the drive that he had at that point in his life. And I think it's just a conference, a very confronting thing to admit and uh, to want to make a change. And uh, it was one of the greatest experiences of, of my life, which is with this podcast, you know, it's, uh, it's cathartic for me to talk about it, but, if it can help just one person or someone can sit home and say, shit, you know, that, that's me.
how I do that or I can feel that way. So that was absolutely wonderful. It was, um, it was, it was almost like you were talking to yourself. It was yeah, the non-violent version of me. So yeah. now a few hiccups came along the way. Um, it wasn't depression. It was victories or wonderful times where there were triggers. So a birthday of mine, I made an excuse and I drank. I went to a restaurant one night. Now the thing, alcohol, Anthony, is uh, it's not as addictive as heroin and it's not as addictive as nicotine. But one thing I'll say about alcohol is that with its infrastructure of you know, the way it's in our society and the way it's um, presented in life, it's the hardest thing to give up. Because I'll give you an example of a day in the life of me in the past if I've had a bad day or I've got the 10 second warning, I'll sit down and watch a movie. All right, I'm watching Rio Bravo, John Wayne. Every second scene, they're drinking whiskey and enjoying it. And then, so I turn the TV off and go, well, that's not going to work for me. I'm going to go for a drive. So I've got the footy on and someone kicks a goal and then um, one of the commentators goes, that's a thirsty camel goal of the day. And you think, well, fucking hell. So you got to turn the radio off. So now I just go for a drive in silence. So I've driven past five bottleos. He said, oh, well, that's not going to work for me either. So I'll ring a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and we'll go and have a, a meal at a restaurant. Now I get to the restaurant, and the, and the, one, the, the glass is on the table implied you're going to have one before you even make the choice. It's not like they put it there. So you sit down, and you've got the glass there, and then they take it away if you don't want it. So at the beginning when I said the odds are stacked against you, I mean, like, when you think of it like that, if you're having a bad day with heroin, you don't drive past... Um, you know, a shop that sells the syringes and you're not, um, you know, going to a, a hotel where they've got, you know, a glass pipe on the table It's um, that, or, or an ashtray. So, and then you also have the, the cultural, the social thing of alcohol where that's, it's a lot of people's lives and that their whole social life is built around them. So, uh, you know, I found that uh, there, there were many people that I had to let go in my life purely because, hey, it was, uh, there's no substance. It was just, like I said before, it was vapid. You're just talking rubbish without it. There's nothing. Or there are souls that they, they, they want to tempt you with alcohol and they're still offering it to you, which is absolutely outrageous. So. Yeah, it's, um, we, we socially accept being drunk and you might even get high-fived for it on Monday morning, but. Don't smoke weed. We'll put you in jail. Oh yeah, yeah. I was at a party. I went somewhere Saturday night. It was a get together, and everyone in the circle was drinking, except me. I had a cup of coffee, and some of the piss rabble I was listening to, and then um, there was one lady who was getting, uh, you know, terse. And I can't stand that, mate. When people were, that's a deal breaker for me. If I'm with a lady, if she's a drinker and uh, she gets like that, that. Um, acidic sort of tone and no, no one gives a shit if I if someone pulled out a syringe people would lose their mind and as they should mm. as they should but yeah. um, it's okay for uh, such and such to sit there and um, and be rude to someone because they're pissed you were talking about um, relationships have you had any success 
my last girlfriend, when she's up and running, there's no one better. No one better. And when we first met, she said on the phone that she doesn't have a drinking problem. She's a social drinker. And I went, okay. And then I was, by the time I was invested in uh, emotionally, I went, yeah, you're not a social drinker. Um, and that was uh, a huge problem for me. And I can't have that. I don't keep things in my home related to alcohol. And I, I can't have someone in my life who uh, has a problem with alcohol. And I, I was talking to Ray the other day about this. It's, I find it fascinating that I've said it's taken and it's taken and it's taken. And, you know, I haven't had a drink for two and a half years now and it's still taking. <laughs> because, you know, this lady, uh, I'm not willing. I'd rather be on my own than be with someone who's 90, 90% there. But I, that's just a, a deal breaker. I can't have that. I can't have someone who... Um, mm you know, has a problem with alcohol. It's, uh, I've worked too hard to uh, go back to that. Not back to that with me doing that, back to that looking at, she's like the, basically the female version of the old me. And I, I yeah. want to go forward. So, uh, yeah, it still takes. Um, but uh, look, the road was still going to be hard. So I left the RA because obviously I had the money and all the rest. But I'm sort of half on my way. I've got some great literature that I'm getting involved with now, you know, growth within myself. I'm getting into philosophy and, you know, books on the brain, psychology. And, you know, I talk back and forth with Ray about the ideas of life and growth and all these wonderful things. And then... Um, 2015 was a tough year. I don't like the term midlife crisis. I like midlife awakening. And I really uh, threw the toys out the cop this particular year because I, you know, I'll go back to the, I could have been a contender speech. I laid there and I'm a huge self-critic and I'm extremely hard on myself. And although that, like I said before, it's not great, but that's helped me get to where I am. But I've thought myself to rampancy of, well, I'm not where I should be. I felt like I hadn't um, done enough. I'm not where I want to be, and uh, but I still don't know where I want to be and all this sort of bullshit. And I started uh, feeling a bit a bit off, and my relationship I was in was starting to really peter out. The first couple of years are fantastic. Uh, now we're kind of uh, just mates. And I'm sitting at home one night, and I uh, thought, well... The 10 second warning hit me mate and I just went fuck it I went to the bottle I bought two bottles of red wine and I enjoyed every bit of it and I sat and I listened to music by myself and I ran out so I went and drove and got more went down the bottle over and got another uh, bottle of red and I knew the guy through the dryer I knew from you know when I used to be a huge drinker and uh, he Gave me a similar look to what my mum and dad did that time on the way to Manham. And he kind of knew. And he knew that I'd, I'd stopped. And he knew I was there before. And he knew I now drove back. And the look of... Uh, well, he just worried and disappointed. And I came back and now I was talking about that graph. I've already hit the peak. Now I'm on the way down and I'm just drinking to, to fill that ravenous craving. 
and I finished this bottle, mate, within uh, oh, look, I didn't an album, an Elvis album I was listening to didn't even finish, and I went back and got another one. And so I really felt like some smokes with the wine, so I went and got cigarettes and uh, didn't indicate. Cop pulled me over, and then I lost my license again. And uh, they impounded the car for a month. Now this is worse than the accident because I felt so miniature in my spirit and myself, and the embarrassment to the point I was telling people, "I oh, don't tell, don't tell your missus, or don't tell." Oh, mate, when I rang my parents, I. Uh, my mum was extremely uh, good with that, you know, I thought she was going to be highly disappointed, which they would have been, but she approached it with love instead of uh, judgment, and um, that was tough. That was six months with no licence. Mm. I got my car back, obviously, and uh, after a month, and I became quite low, and um, yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, it was a rough time, and um, one more time after that, I I got stuck into it, and uh, you know, it's the reoccurring theme. I'd wake up, I'd be in bed and be at myself, and um, you know, you won a war, and now you're back to this, and then uh, I did the same thing. I had to go back to the mirror, and uh, you know, I was more now depressed than I was after the first prank, and then I went, that's it. It's time to uh, get your shit together. And um, I was flying for about nearly two, two and a half years. And uh, I'd get cravings. I'd get that 10-second warning, and I was okay. And I had a mate at the time that had cystic fibrosis, and um, he had a lung transplant. And, um, you know... Obviously, without going into that too much, he passed away at 39, and um, we had his funeral. And uh, I was a pallbearer. And uh, when the coffin went onto the ground, you know, I thought of him, and then something inside me started to uh, bubble, and uh, I was worried. And um, anyway. I thought, nah, come on, come on. Anyway, I went home to get dressed for the uh, wake, which is at the Teachery Gully Hotel, and I had a shower, and I put on my shirt, and I said, why not? My intent was already there because I got my mate's brother to drop me off, so that was it. Now at the table, I put a glass of red wine down, and everyone looked at me because everyone there knew me and one lady there said, oh, why are you having a red wine? Now, that wine was gone within seconds. I would have drank the equivalent that night of five bottles with shots. I blacked out at the pub. Uh, I woke up standing. I could smell this smell. I, 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 so I went from blacking out. Now I'm standing up. In my house, I could hear some Paul Hardcastle, which is like a, some soft lounge music playing. I could smell this scented candle that I lit. And I woke up, standing up, massaging one of the women from the wake, and I've just gone, fuck! So I've gone and checked the house. The keys are on the hook. The phone and my wallet are lined up where they should be. 
and within that state, I've done. All, I've locked the house, so I don't know how I've got home. But this lady's there, and it was just kind of one of those things that's kind of, in retrospect, kind of funny. That it's not funny about the drinking, but you know, in that state of uh, put things in order, and uh, I've got this lady there, the sea mist candle on, some uh, soft lounge, and uh, you know, that's not a victory. But I, <laughs> I laid there for for days, more at myself than I've ever been in my life. And that was uh, late 2017. I, I haven't drank since. And um, I'm the best version of myself that I've ever been. And I'm not cured, Anthony. And I'll, I'll never be cured. Um, I just live with it. And uh, I'm getting too old uh, to fucking care what people think of me. And I'm what I did with Ray that time is just now how I roll. If I talk about it with people want to say, why don't you drink? Well, this is why. And uh, I haven't even really thought about it in the last two and a half years. And I've had some victories. I've had some heartaches. Uh, my mum went to Europe by herself at 74, got pneumonia. Got While she's in hospital, had a fall and broke her hand. And I had to work overtime to get her home. In the meantime, the insurance company had rejected her claim. And when she got home in the past to get her home safe, and then I got the insurance reversed and got her the money, that's a victory. That's winning a war. That's in your DNA. You win a war, you drink the, the chalice, the goblet of, of wine. I didn't want it, which was unusual but wonderful. I've had a few things I've had to uh, deal with over the last couple of years, some good, some bad, and not once have I turned to it. And the honesty, I've the best conversations you have in life, Anthony, are about the truth. And I went to a work do, yeah. I went to a work show where I'm at the Journey Generals now with some of the loveliest people, not that I've worked with, that I've known in my whole life. I went to a work show that I might have avoided before actually because I didn't want the temptation and I wasn't actually on the day I was still thinking ah oh, I can't be bothered and there was one of the lawyers there he said mate come on man we all want you there rah, rah, rah. and he kind of twisted my arm and said yeah why not so I rocked up and I got a soda water and this is where it's interesting some friends of mine Michael and Donna who are, they're already friends of mine they're lovely people Mick came up and he, he said oh is that vodka and I went, nah, man, soda water. I said, I don't drink. He goes, why not? Well, I told him. I told him the truth. In the past, I would have been embarrassed or I would have possibly lied. I told him the truth. Now, what that did, and I love this guy. At first, because I told him some stories and I told him that C-Miss thing and all that. He goes, oh, that. I said, it's like having two entities. Like my mates call it drunk wanting. It's like the, have, you ever, have you ever seen The Mask with Jim Carrey? It's a great yeah. metaphor for any addiction when the mask is on he's like, a different, he's like a different person and he ends up throwing the mask off because it's no good into the river at the end of the movie but it, that's what I'm like you know I have a few drinks and I'm Cuban Pete in the street dancing around and I'm fucking Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire you know it's crazy and Mick goes oh, I want to meet this guy I said no I'll bottle him up but then because he's so self aware he just went nah nah go, mate, that's, I'm proud of you man that's great and Donna said oh that's really really good and that happened two more times that night. And uh, when people said, oh, is that gin or is that vodka? I said, no, nah, 
and because the people want to know why. So it's interesting. Um, we were talking before about the social culture of alcohol, where you know what even spoke about things that are implied, like you go to the restaurant, the wine glass is there. Well, it was implied by some people that I had vodka in my glass, not soda water, and they, and they want to know why. So uh, I told them the truth, and I opened up an avenue to wonderful conversation, and uh, they probably respect me more. What's your motivation to bear your soul like you have on this podcast? Well, to be to be truthful, it was not something that I'd thought of. It was Ray that said, Chris, you've got to meet my friend Anthony. You'd get on well with him, mate. I'm going to have a dinner. We'll have a chat. You'd, and uh, maybe you could do a podcast with him. And uh, he goes, you know, I think it would be great. I love the story. I think it needs to be told. I said, oh, okay, sure. So it's not something I actually... I was seeking out to do but then when it was organized between the three of us that I would do it there was there's two reasons why I agreed number one it's cathartic for me I love to talk about it and number two which is just as important if it can help one person sitting there today or in ten years for it, whenever they listen to this, if that can make a difference to one person's life, like I do with that man, I mean, I don't know the history of that man, either the future of that fellow that in the Ra, I don't know what happened after him, but you'd like to think that he, you know, after he wept and went home, hopefully he made a change, if he did or he didn't, that's not my responsibility, but I hope I made a, a, an effect, I certainly made an immediate effect, otherwise he wouldn't have had the tears nailed to hand, but if someone at home is listening and can make a change that that would be wonderful really wonderful I had a birthday this year and I told the people in the um, in the office they made a big fuss over it and uh, you know I didn't really make a speech but I just said this is the best birthday I've ever had and one of the people in there said why and I said it's because where I'm at in my life and the people in it I am the best version of me but uh, look, the, the battle rages on. I'm happy there hasn't really been a battle for a while, but look, I can stand here as I look over at the mountains now, and I'll tell you right now that there'll be a time I'll get a 10-second warning. And, uh, you know, I, I've got the tools in the toolbox, and uh, I'm in a, in a, a place where I'd like to think I'm good to go. So, uh, just one day at a time. And I just want to say something real quick. That I went to AA last year three times. Not because I needed to. I just wanted to be around it. I love talking about it. I wanted to say some stuff. And one thing I wanted to do is when I went there in 2005 and I gave him the, the, the speech which took, you know, half the night about, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. And I wanted to, I said, my name's Chris and I'm an alcoholic. And it felt fucking wonderful. And uh, they probably appreciated it too because I didn't waste time banging on about, uh, you know, my binge story. But there, there's no grey area with this, whether you don't drink in the morning or whatever. If, if it's a problem, if you're overmatched, you're an alcoholic. 
you can't there's no justification of oh, I'm a binger if you binge and you can't stop there's a problem so uh, that was nice to say and then uh, get some stuff out and listen to some stories um, someone in there in particular wanted me to possibly run one and I I don't know if that's really for me so much where you're committed to that all the time, but I do like to go there every now and then and just uh, sometimes just to listen. And it's just nice to talk about it. It's cleansing. I find it very cleansing to talk about it. Uh, the truth will set you free oh, is yeah. one of the great lines. Um, so after ignorance, after ignorance is bliss. The truth will set you free. Is and you can throw a blanket over everything in life with with the truth. It's extremely important. Yeah. And now, you know, I'm I'm 43 and uh, I'm truthful to myself and uh, and to others. And I can look in the mirror and I'm proud. But uh, once again, I'm not cured. But I'm doing okay. Yeah, um, your story is a brave one. And uh, you had me in tears at times, and that's why I didn't say much, because there was no need for me to speak. <laughs> yeah, I'm really grateful that you, you agreed to come on and share it, and I, I hope, like you do, that there's people that will listen and will go, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe I need to make some adjustments. Yeah, well, there's um, yeah, another thing I had real quick, which is this is not something I've created. I actually learnt this from um, I'm a mental health first aider at work, and uh, the lady pres did a presentation, and I found this absolutely fascinating. It's a little checklist, which uh, you know I can uh, tick all of these. Um, this, not now, but you know, when when I was in full swing, and I've actually done this with some people I know when they've uh, they felt there was an issue. The four L's are: Are you breaking the law? Drink driving. If you're a drug addict, are you stealing? Your livelihood? Are you not going to work? Your, your absenteeism high because you're hungover or you're doing other things. Your liver and love. And love doesn't have to be intimate relationships. That can be platonic. In my case, I lost, I've lost a friend, um, which is, once again, not over the accident. Well, it was over the accident, but not, it was uh, over something else with, with money after the, the situation. So, uh, but still, nevertheless, I lost a friend that uh, I considered a brother. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's been a journey, Anthony, and um, I uh, only, you know, I reflect on the bad times only to go forward. I certainly don't. There were there were times in my life where I thought of, uh, you know, the things that were terrible, where people I've wronged, and I didn't use the twelve steps in AA. I've sort of created my own in a way, and I haven't even written them down. But I have made an effort to contact people that, if I've uh, been out of line I've apologised um, and uh, I think that's really important but uh, mm. and, I, and on a happy note 
uh, when my mum turned 70, I uh, was sober and I, I made a speech and it was one of the hardest things emotionally I've had to do because one oh, it was her birthday uh, the year before, I got a blank card and wrote her a poem instead of getting a card that was written. And I incorporated the poem into the speech. I mean, if you think I could get the thing out like in one hit, I had to stop. Every lady in the at the table was crying, and I was crying. And but I got I got it out. And you know, when I came home, I felt like the uh, oh, it was something visceral, like an experience I've never had. Where I actually came home, and I was absolutely proud. I actually, it's like a spirit went out of my back and left like some demon. I righted a wrong from the 60th. So what a difference from her 60th where I drank rum and didn't want to speak yeah. now to 70th. I'm in a suit, I'm in a good place. I spoke well. Amazing. People uh, came up to me after and it wasn't about being congratulated, but I was so proud. I stood up and conducted this, this speech that was wonderful with a poem and my mum was in, she was in tears from joy, and you know there's a lot of heartfelt things in this poem. But I write it's an arc. I've write it a wrong, and it made me feel wonderful. And uh, you know, continue. Well, I'm guessing that your you parents know? are proud of you and what you've done. Yeah, yeah. But Dad, uh, he told me last night. He's only told me twice in life that he's proud of me, and he told me last night. I told him I was doing this today, and uh, he, he said that that uh, my, you know my dad is not. I'm very expressive. I don't keep stuff in. You know, you're going to hear it. You know, I'd hate to think if I got wiped out, or you know, if I never got to tell someone how I felt. You know, you know what a great person they were, or what a nice quality trait. Because regret is the worst thing you can ever have weed it you like cancer yeah so yeah the, it's just one day at a time and um, and not even from an hacker perspective I, I think uh, it's one of the secrets of life and I mean it's very hard to embrace every single moment on its merit without any sort of thought about past or present that's almost impossible in a functioning society where you work and Let's live in some compound where you, you know, you're, you know, with a pet tiger eating oats, and you don't have to do too much. I mean, if you're functioning in a society where you have stresses and problems, to live it by each moment on its merit is almost impossible. But if you can try, you know, and uh, just take things as they come, which is uh, it works for me. Um, Every time I got a mate that's always saying, "What do you see you do yourself in three years? What's your five-year plan?" I will go, "One day at a time. One day at a time." And so that's, that's brilliant, the, uh, Chris, and a a good um, good motto to end on. Yeah, for everyone. Yeah. So one day at a time. Yep. It's, Especially at the moment, the way America. the world is. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I've yeah. spent a lot of my life worrying about things that never happened. You know, and as the wise man said, I've fought a thousand battles and only one happened. Um, it's mm. very easy to get caught up with what could be, what if, and 
and all that sort of stuff. But uh, you know, I never had this sort of clarity uh, when I drank. That uh, my growth as a person is, um, you know, wouldn't be there being sober and without the uh, the people you come in contact to in your life. And um, yeah, for sure. And Ray will be listening to this and. Uh, you know, I had a good chat with him yesterday and told him exactly how I feel. And um, he's treated me uh, not just like a friend, but a son. And his guidance and his wisdom, uh, you know, couldn't be matched by anyone. He really, uh, yeah, I, I can't speak high enough of him. So if you're listening, Ray, hello and, and thank you. So, awesome. All right, Chris. Well, I can't wait to hear the next chapter of what goes on in your life. And uh, thank you for being brave to tell your story. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time you've taken to, to listen to my story. And uh, let's hope, you know, some people can um, maybe hear this and, and make that change, go to the mirror and, you know, be the best version of themselves as well. <laughs>